adding more people to an inefficient process makes everything harder. It's a band-aid solution that people think throwing more money and people at the problem will fix it. In 99% of the cases, it probably makes it worse. And the cheaper, better, more scalable version is to go to the root of the issue. You have a process issue. Adding more people to that bad process is just going to make life harder. Welcome to Pivot Me, where we give business tips and mental hacks so you can move past your biggest obstacles and live the life you've earned. And now your host, business advisor and performance expert, April Garcia. For years, I made large companies larger and rich people richer. Now I coach driven entrepreneurs to hack success, create more time and get better results through high performance habits, the multiply me method, and a little mental gymnastics. On Pivot Me, I talk to thought leaders and experts sharing our successes, our many scrubs, and how we can all use both to move us to the next level. Join us and learn real simple steps to pivot you and your business towards the life you've earned. My guest today is business efficiency expert and author of Idea to Execution, Nick Sonnenberg. He is the founder and CEO of Leverage, and he uses his background in data science to disrupt the way people work by leveraging the power of outsourcing, common tools, and automation. Nick will walk us through the best tools to communicate with our team, and we will go into specifics, when to email, when to text, Slack, use Asana, Microsoft Teams. We're also going to cover why, when looking for information within the company, speed of retrieval is more important than speed of transfer. In essence, why you shouldn't just text your team for a client proposal, but rather have a place that they are always stored. He will talk about the dangers and time suck of the scavenger hunt in organizations. I know we've all been guilty of this one. As soon as I heard him say the name, I thought, my God, I've done this and you probably have too. We're also going to talk about his upcoming book, Come Up for Air, how your team can leverage systems and tools to stop drowning at work. If you want to be more efficient, want your team to be more efficient, then this podcast is for you. Let's get into it. I want to thank Nick for joining us at Pivot Me today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Nick and I got connected when I had a conversation with Jay Abraham and I said, who should we have on next at Pivot Me? He said, you got to talk to Nick. So we're so glad to have you today and understand about your work, how you got to doing this kind of work and how you help business owners get to that next level of success. Well, anyone that's a friend of Jay is a friend of mine. So super happy to connect here with you, April, and share whatever might be helpful to the audience. Absolutely. So Nick, let's start with your background. So we touched on a little bit in the bio, but you started in a very different type of field, but found that it was actually very applicable to what you're doing now. So can you talk to us about the high frequency trader, the work that you did and how it translates over to your work today? Sure. So for those of you that don't know what a high frequency trader is, basically I'm trading stocks at super high frequencies. So we're looking at nanoseconds and microseconds, know nothing about the companies that we're investing in but it's all math-based, right? So looking for statistical discrepancies between the theoretical price and the actual price. In some cases, it's fractions of fractions of a penny between what the math says and where it's actually trading at. But with speed and good math and a lot of capital, 
you can make some significant money. So at a young age, I was managing five to $10 billion of capital in my mid twenties doing that. But the, the skills that you learn as a high frequency trader, one, it's not just about return, but it's also minimizing your downside, which is something that Jay and I like to talk a lot about, right? We call that a sharp ratio, maximizing your return while minimizing your risk. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are just hearing marketing and growth strategies, which is the top part of that ratio, the growth, they're not thinking about minimizing downside. And you've really got to think about both. And depending on where you're at in maturity of your company, how much you focus on minimizing downside to upside, of course, you, you need to make payroll, you need cash flow and all that. But that's something that needs to be considered. And maybe it's a little bit less on the, on the downside minimization now, but you always got to be thinking about it. The other thing that it got me thinking in terms of is systems and process and with algorithms, we're looking at how do we shave off a microsecond? And so I've taken that same thinking, how do I make this process one second more efficient or 10 seconds more efficient? So I think a mistake that a lot of people make is they're just looking for these huge, like, how can I save 10 hours? Like the odds that you find one thing that's going to save you a ton of time or make such a big difference. For me, it's really the sum of micro improvements. So that really trained me to look at things, dissect things, break them down into its parts and try to isolate and celebrate micro wins. If you do the same process a thousand times a month and you save a second each time, that's a thousand seconds, right? And if you look at this across all of your systems and processes, you might have hundreds or thousands of processes that in, in itself, each might be executed hundreds or thousands of times. So actually a second or 10 seconds on any given step could actually be significant you know, over the course of a month or a year. I love this concept of some of micro improvements. I've seen it in my own consulting business that people look for these big sweeping changes and they think their business and their life is affected by these big sweeping changes, but it's these tiny little improvements. And I love that that's what you turn to. Nick, I, I want to talk about the work that you do now, but I've just got to stop for a second. Did you say you managed five to 10, do you say billion in your mid twenties? Yeah. So on a personal level, how did you handle that? Like, how were you not or were you grappling with imposter syndrome or you're so young or how can someone like you do this already? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I didn't sleep very well the first say year or two because it, it's doing algorithmic trading. There's a lot of different things you have to be an expert at. You have to understand everything from the trading strategy to how the exchange processes an order and what's the type of order sequence that you would expect to get back from an ex Like You have to understand from wire to wire, everything that happens, because inevitably mistakes happen. What happens if the exchange has a glitch and shuts down and you've got a billion dollars pending and you don't know if you've been filled or not? How do you handle that? So it took a couple of years to, to wrap my head around it. And it was quite stressful because you're dealing with such large numbers that, you know, if you make a mistake or don't look at something the right way, I mean, it can be significant. But after about two years, you know, I did it for, for eight. So for the final six years, it wasn't too stressful. Uh, for the first couple, you know, from like 23 to 25, there was a learning curve that required significant amount of nights and weekends. I bet. So is there a technique that you used after two years that kind of helped you settle into whether it was accepting the risk, accepting that they're tackling the fears of, yes, there might be a mistake. And if so, I'll deal with it then. Like what had to change for you from year two to year three? Nothing. I mean, just continually trying to understand the full spectrum of everything required to be successful in that job. So 
you know, there's so many different aspects. Anything that I couldn't just write down on a piece of paper, this is how it works, meant that I had some gaps that I needed to learn. I studied math and my master's is in financial engineering. And so what I realized in this job was going through school, I was always pretty good in my math classes. You know, I always performed very well. But when you get into that job, you're dealing with everyone that did exceptional and PhDs in math and computer science. And so what made me different wasn't that I was the best at math. I was on par and good. There was people far better, but it was really understanding from a business standpoint, the economics of how things work, the rules of the exchanges, the full end to end of how it works. And so I was really studying a lot of that. So rather than throwing more math at problems, I was trying to take, you know, complex math, but not trying to go overboard with it. But I was trying to take advantage or utilize the rules of the game. So I, I invested the first two years learning the rules of the game quite well. And then I would develop strategies using math and then utilize math to execute on opportunity. That's a really good point, Nick. Cause I'm just thinking about you're in this arena and you're saying everybody in the arena is good. It's only the best of the best that's in here. And instead of trying to improve your math, you said, okay, what else can be my competitive advantage and understanding the economics ended up being it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You know, one thing that Jay Abraham's an expert at is looking at how people are doing things in other industries and areas or trying to flip things on its head. Okay. Well, you're always doing it this way. What if we completely think about the problem differently? So one of the strategies that was the most successful was I, I, I did the complete opposite. Usually we were doing index arbitrage, which meant you provide liquidity on index futures, and then you hedge by sending an order with a basket of stocks. And you know, at 25, 26, I rolled out a strategy that did the opposite, where you first market made stocks and then hedged with futures. And not to get into the details of the logic and some of the exchanges I was doing this on and the why, but it ended up being one of the most successful strategies on the trading desk for a multitude of reasons. But it started not with math, but with understanding kind of all the rules of the game. Nick, how did you have the courage to do that? At 26, of like, all right, this is how everyone else is doing it. And I'm going to go this way. Like, what was, the, what was the catalyst for that? It wasn't a courage thing. It's really just seeing an opportunity and then getting really excited about it and having a bit of OCD and not stopping until, you know, get something to work. Yeah. But for me, it wasn't a job. It was a hobby. And it's kind of the same with entrepreneurship. Like this to me is a hobby. And so it's not a courage thing. It's, I see an opportunity. I think it's going to work. Let's go and put your time and money where, where your mouth is and see what happens. So we had an entrepreneur on a while ago and we were talking about how speed of execution was a through line in really successful entrepreneurs. And I asked him, I was talking to a president of a company and I said, you're a very fast executor. I said, how do you do that? And he said the phrase, because I don't believe that any of my moves are fatal. And I'm kind of getting that vibe in this conversation, Nick, is that something you, like... I don't believe that what I'm about to do is fatal. I mean, you're looking at a job as a hobby. So it sounds like if you do make the wrong move, you believe that you can fix it on the back end. I, I literally just got off of uh, our weekly team member huddle where I talked about this and I was clarifying with them, what's the difference between being a perfectionist and being detail oriented. But that was a great conversation. Yeah, well, it, it's a subtle, but, it, it, but a really important distinction. So I said to him, look, we all know I'm very detail oriented, but, and I'll catch a mistake or et cetera, et cetera. But when is, when is something good enough? And that really is a function of what is at stake. So for example, if we're sending out a statement of work for 
tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to a really large client, triple check that the email is grammatically correct and that the statement of work is accurate. But there's other things that we do that have less downside risk or less impact if there's a mistake. And so you you can be detail-oriented, but you have to know kind of what's at stake and where you want to pull the lever, right? And that's a function of the downside and also just time to execute. You know, so we were going over what's the best practice of documenting process, which is something that's really critical. And I was sharing with them, look, this took me five minutes. It's not totally perfect. It's not totally done. It's not client facing, but I got 80% done in five minutes. And now at least we could say we have this process documented. And in two months, if we want to go back and make it prettier with conditional logic and automation and annotated screenshots, we could do that. But don't get mistaken that when I ask you to document a process, it's always a 10-hour investment. It might be a five to 10-minute investment for the first pass, depending on context. That's a great point. I love this, that it depends on what's really at stake. And on previous shows, we've talked about the word perfectionist and how much I'm not a fan of it because ultimately it lends itself to very slow execution. So I'm glad we talked about the difference between detail-oriented and perfectionist. My first book was called Idea to Execution. So, you know, I'm all about, if you ever read the book Lean Startup by Eric Ries about the whole concept of build, measure, learn, it's a trade-off. You don't want to sit in a vacuum thinking about something. Like you'll learn much more quickly just getting something out there, trying it, right? So on a lot of these calls, I'll just stop it be like, look, I don't care what we call this product. I don't care if you want to charge 250, 300, like whatever, just get it out, get 10 people using it and let's do another sync up and share what we learned and then we'll have a discussion. Yeah, we we understand more by doing than thinking and planning sometimes. So let's talk about the book, Idea to Execution. So tell the pivoters about the book, but also what happens in the point of idea to execution, because I'm sure just like in my practice, you see a lot of people with a lot of great ideas, but how many actually get executed on? So talk to us about that space between idea and execution. So the book, it's it's a few years old now. I'm more excited for the new book I have coming out, which we can talk about later. But Idea to Execution is really just the story of how I bootstrapped leverage. So no money, you know, and grew it to a seven-figure business with 150 people in the first year by leveraging systems and tools properly. Ideas are valuable, but if you don't have a system to capture it, prioritize it, if they never see the, the light of day, they're worth nothing to me. So one of my huge pet peeves are these, like what I call idea machines, where it's just like idea, idea. And like, all right, we got enough ideas, like pick one and execute it because just the idea in itself is worth nothing or very little, let's say. I don't think that right now, probably most people listening are short on ideas. I think that they're lacking capacity and capability to execute on any of the ideas properly by enhancing their capability and capacity to execute not only will they monetize certain ideas, but they would be able to collect and gather and prioritize many more ideas once they're able to execute. But if you already have a backlog of 100 ideas that aren't getting done, you probably what's going to move the needle for your business isn't to add like the 101 brilliant idea. Yeah, absolutely. People love brainstorming, right? And it's fun. And like, let's throw it up there. And then it tends to not get out of that brainstorming phase. Yeah, I call it intellectual masturbation, kind of. Like, I think that like, People just really get stimulated by, oh, let's do that. Oh, and it's like, sure, like those are fun, exciting, stimulating conversations. But it's all a balancing act, just like top line revenue versus bottom line revenue is a balancing act. 
ideas versus execution is a balancing act. Most people don't balance these ratios properly and they're really just on top line and on ideas. They're not thinking about execution and thinking about bottom line. And the idea part's fun. I mean, it is, it is fun and it get everyone together and you're putting stuff up on a whiteboard, but the execution, it's less fun. It's less sexy showing up every day and making this incremental progress towards a goal. It's hard. And that's where a lot of people fall away that it's, it's not the best ideas that come to market. It's the, often the ones that are consistently executed against. And that's the piece that so many entrepreneurs can struggle with. I want us to talk in a second about where you've seen entrepreneurs struggle, but first let's talk about your new book. So your upcoming book, Come Up For Air, How Your Team can leverage systems and tools to stop drowning in work. Tell us about that book, Nick. So the book is based off of just pain and us making a million mistakes. So, you know, for those listening, I mean, it might come off like I've got all the answers, but anything that I talk about is because we made so many mistakes and tested so many things that as it stands today, this is what seems to have worked, but it's it's after a lot of mistakes. So so basically the book is, is about this framework that I've developed called CPR. It stands for Communicate, Plan, and Resource. And April, what I found from not only how we operate at Leverage, because we made so many mistakes, we almost went bankrupt a few times. And when my ex-business partner left and we were like 150 people in the company, but a lot of things that were broken, I realized that these were like kind of the three buckets that we needed to fix if we're going to kind of stay, stay around. And so I just started realizing over time, like, Hey, like actually how we've turned the ship around is focusing on these areas. Coincidentally, people started reaching out to me and I got to work with, you know, small financial advisor firms up to Tony Robbins and Poopery and Ethereum and some very large fortune 100 companies. And what we found April is the problems were very similar. It didn't matter if you were this massive thought leader with a huge team, remote, not remote, remote healthcare, financial services. Every business in the world needs to communicate internally with team members, externally with clients and partners. You need to plan. So you've got tasks and projects that need to be executed. And then resources is all about your proprietary assets, your policies, your processes. And so I don't care your size, your industry or anything, you got those three buckets. Like if you're listening to this right now, those are three buckets. Now, what we found is most companies don't think about it like this. And most companies are run off of text and email. And most have never even heard of tools like Slack or Microsoft Teams or Asana or things like this. And if they have, it's been poorly rolled out to the company. Most likely no one's ever been trained when to use these tools, how to use these tools. And then what ends up happening is now it's an extra tool that causes stress and it's just another place to look because they're not getting the value out of it. If you don't know when or how to use a tool, it's, it's going to hurt your company, not help your company. And so this book is basically all around how your team and your organization can use tools and systems and think about them properly in order to save a ton of time. So we, we also do, we do at Leverage, we do consulting for small all the way up to enterprise cl- clients. And when you roll these things out, you can easily save five to 10 hours a week per person in a team because companies have what I call a scavenger hunt problem. And it takes longer to find information than it does to get the work done in the first place. And at the core, this happens because 
everyone's already overwhelmed working at 100% capacity. And so what happens when, when, when you're overworked and you're already working 60, 80, whatever it is, 100 hours a week, you try to cut corners. You try to make in the moment something a bit easier because you've got a million other emails to get to. And so what do you do? You start optimizing for speed of transfer of information. So I don't know if I'm in my text and I, I'm on your team, but I want to ask you to get me a report by Friday, I'll probably just text you. And if I'm in my email right now and I need to know what the status is of a project, I'll email you and ask you. And amongst other tools. And before you know it, sure, you got that off of your plate very quickly but you ought to be optimizing for speed of retrieval of information, not transfer. And if you get your whole team aligned to take pause and put that information where it belongs, if everyone does it net net, every person in the company will be saving five to 10 hours a week easily. But one, you have to understand kind of the theory and when and how to use the right tools, but also it's a mindset shift like, Hey, we are all making an agreement to take pause and put things where it belongs. And it, you do it in your personal life. Like when you do your laundry, when you take your laundry out of the dryer, you don't just throw your socks and shirts and shorts all in one drawer. You take a little bit extra time and you separate your underwear from your shirts, from your pants. And you do that not because it's the fastest way to finish your laundry, but because next week when you have to put an outfit together, it's faster to do that. And so it's the same mentality with work. Certain types of information belong in certain types of tools. And if you take pause and you do that, net, net, you're going to, on the back end, save a significant amount of time, avoid the scavenger hunt problem. And it all starts with shifting from optimizing for speed of transfer of information to optimizing for speed of retrieval of information. It makes complete sense. Let's put it into action. So are we talking about, is it channels in Slack? Are you talking about Asana boards? What do you specifically suggest? there's a whole bunch of different things that happen, right? So if I want to welcome a team member to the company, that's probably going to be in some type of general channel inside of Slack or Microsoft Teams. You know, welcome welcome to the team, April. We have a channel called Water Cooler. But if I have something where I want to hold you accountable and we want to capture the state of it, hey, April, create this report for me by Friday, that would go in Asana. The way that I explain it is, you know, imagine we were going to go camping in the forest with your team. We would need walkie talkies to communicate with each other, but we still need a map to navigate out of the forest and Slack and email and text. Those are your walkie talkies. It's not your map, right? That's where things like Asana or Trello or Monday come into play. So they're fantastic tools, but it starts with understanding where does this fit into the ecosystem of your work? And when should you use which tool for which purpose? Then the next part to it is once you understand that, you've wrapped your head around when, then you got to know how to use them properly. But it all starts with when. When should you use text versus email versus Slack versus Asana? And so that's part of what the book explains. So say a pivoter is listening right now and they're running a $10 million organization and they're going, okay, well, we use WhatsApp, we use email, and we've got a Slack channel and we've got... Asana. How do you delineate between the two? Like, all right, I need something quick for my team. So I'm going to go to text. I'm, I'm getting the impression that no, that's not what we should be doing. So what would you say to a pivoter that's running a $10 million organization trying to figure out which tool to use? So before I answer that, what are we optimizing for? One, we're optimizing for speed of retrieval of information. Okay. And then two, you also have to consider 
if this person that I'm talking to or delegating to were to leave tomorrow, how easy is it for me to get someone else up to speed? Most people are not considering that when they are collaborating inside of their team. All right. So with that being said, what we recommend, one, what is communication versus, or there's a project that you want to know the status of, and you want to you know, if there's like a verb in it, please do this for me. For example, Asana, which we're partners with, full disclosure. Yes. We love Asana too. Yeah. It's a fantastic tool. We're, we're one of their solutions partners and uh, that's our kind of official recommendation of a tool. And we've got a ton of content and programs just around Asana because it can change completely how you operate. Only 3% of speakers, podcasters, and authors make enough money to do it as a full-time career. 3%. Man, that's bad. I came from the big business world, and if I wanted to scale my speaking career and release courses, I knew I needed more than just case studies and metrics. I actually needed a personal brand. Brand Builders Group is a personal brand strategy firm for thought leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs, and they work with some of the biggest names. They help clarify your message, expand reach, and increase revenue while monetizing your personal brand. I still do their monthly consulting package, but I've also done their workshops, webinars. They're all great. Don't be part of the 97% who can't afford to do the work they love full time. Connect with the same team I hired to help me. Check them out at pivot-me.com backslash partners and get on their schedule for a free call. So communication versus work management, you know, the map versus the walkie-talkie. Within communication tools, you've got things like text and WhatsApp. You've got email, you've got Slack and Teams. So look, if the house is burning down, do whatever it takes to get that information across. So that makes sense. Now, if there isn't something urgent, which is like 90 plus percent of the time, what we recommend is text and WhatsApp should be for personal use, not for work use. Email should be for external communication with the caveat, if an external person emails you and you need to show a team member, you can forward it. And Slack and Teams should be for internal communication. So right away, one, this helps you to prioritize your day. Because if you're in a sales role, you probably need to be prioritizing external communication because that's the primary function of your job. So by separating out where information is going, you could say, okay, April, you're head of sales. Most likely you need to be spending X number of hours a day in email. And at least it's like now that could be your focus on your job versus when you have to be looking in five different places and at each one, you need to look at equally because... At any given time, at random, something could come into one that is really important for you. So you can't, you can't do this kind of prioritization when you don't have a policy or a standard way of looking at things. So that's, for the most part, what we recommend. Anything that's actionable, like a task or a project, stick that in your work management tool. And then pretty much all companies do a terrible job of documenting their knowledge, both policies and processes. And that's absolutely critical if you want to scale without the pain. When you say all companies, size-wise, or you're saying across the board? Size, industry, like pretty much every company that we've ever worked with that becomes a client, they are lacking documented things. And 
That's a problem because you're, you end up spending a lot of money reinventing wheels. You're sitting on massive risk because if only one person knows how to do payroll and that person leaves, what do you do? And then also it's really hard to get things off of your plate. If it's not documented, it's going to be hard to get someone else to do it because it's all in your head. You can't, unless you, know, you have mind readers in your company. So by spending the time to document, it allows you maybe not to get the whole process off your plate, but if it's 27 step process and you get three steps off your plate, that's still 11%. So, you know, you got to celebrate those small wins and not to mention too, it's really hard to improve on a process if it's not laid out and people could actually like brainstorm around it. So one of the things that we do, which I took from the high frequency trading world is we do role rotations every quarter to stress test our processes, make sure that we have backups, but also it sparks a ton of new ideas because you're getting fresh eyes spark innovation. So getting people to look at things that they never looked at before forces people to ask questions and we all get busy. So you're not thinking like, well, why am I doing the podcast this way? But this forces those conversations. So Nick, if someone's listening right now, I've had this conversation so many times, I'm sure you have too, where they've got their business maybe to 20 million and you say, okay, well, we got to get some of these processes down because some of them are inside your head. And they say, I don't have time for that. I don't have time to slow down. What are you saying to someone with that response? Well, they don't even do all, well, first of all, they don't have a thousand critical processes. Like start with the ones that are critical, start with revenue producing ones, whatever right? Not all processes are created equal, right? Like the payroll process is probably more important than your podcast process in general. If payroll doesn't happen, like there's some serious problems. If you miss an episode of the podcast, for most people, it's not the end of the world, but prioritize the most important. And yeah, when you do your quarterly planning, most companies don't do proper quarterly planning, but kind of back to what we first started, don't allocate all resources and all objectives and key results and goal setting to top line, allocate a percentage to bottom line too. So you make the space for it because the world's changing so fast, being agile and being able to pivot quickly is critical as I'm sure, you know, you're, you're, you speak about and your business model today is probably going to look very different in a few years for a lot of people. And so your ability to execute and your ability to be agile and change is going to be critical to staying relevant and still being able to grow. So, you know, we've pivoted so many times at Leverage, but we've been able to do it successfully because as a team, we know exactly how to work really well. So it allows us the freedom and flexibility to be able to test a lot of things and change a lot of things because we've removed a lot of the friction that otherwise many companies have. Sure. So Nick, when you're giving this advice on the processes and I, I love it and I'm a fan of Slack, we use Slack, we use Asana, we've, we've got them all. Is there a size in which you need to be looking at this stuff? Do you go, okay, at a, t- a 10 person company, doesn't matter. But once you get to 50 person company, it does matter. Talk to us about that. It matters at every stage. The longer you wait, the more operational debt you accumulate and the more painful it is, right? And complexity scales exponentially with team size. So the difference between a 10-person team and a 20-person team is not twice as complicated. It's exponentially more complicated. You know, another thing. That was so good. Complexity scale, say that again. It scales exponentially with team size. Okay. So it's not going to get easier when they bring on that new admin person. You're saying it's going to become more complicated the more people they bring on. 
Right. So for example, a 10 person team, there's 45 ways that information can get transferred to people. If it's 20, you have 190. If I did my math right, the formula is N times N minus one. Over we're, we're counting on you to do your math right, Nick. Come on. Like that's your thing. I'm pretty sure I'm right. So it's from 45 <laughs> to 190 when you go 10 person to 20 person, right? So, and then it's really expensive and hard to unwind bad behavior and, and habits. We've worked with thousand person teams and it is a serious challenge. So take advantage of it all. Yeah, exactly. And the reason why I specifically point out, is it going to get easier when they bring on the next admin person? A lot of small businesses believe that. They think, well, I'm just going to bring on a few more people and then it will be easier to document all these processes. And this is like a fatal error so many people make. Oh man, I talk about this all the time. Adding more people to an inefficient process makes everything harder. It's a band-aid solution that people think throwing more, more money and people at the problem will fix it. In 99% of the cases, it probably makes it worse. And the cheaper, better, more scalable version is to go to the root of the issue. You have a process issue. Adding more people to that bad process is just going to make life harder. It's kind of like you want to have like private chef cook you dinner, like you get one chef and maybe it goes a little bit faster if you get two, but like if you put 10 chefs in, in a kitchen, you got too many cooks in the kitchen. So the cheapest, most kind of long-term scalable solution typically is get your systems in order, your processes in order. You might need to hire someone and maybe you need to do that to create a little breathing room, but definitely people abuse the hiring card. And in most situations, the best solution is start with your systems and processes and only hire more people kind of once you've gone through the basics on that side. I've heard the phrase, I, I wish I knew who said it so I could quote them properly, but they said, if you don't have time for processes, you'll never have time. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that was Edward Deming. It may have been. I'm not sure who it was. It was It was a great line because so many people say, I don't have time. I don't have time. It's all in my head. I don't have time to slow down. And it's like, but then you'll never have time. And there's not a hire that's going to help you do that. Totally. And like back to your question about the 20 million, how do you do it? You know, there's tools like Loom, which are like screen recording tools. And you can like literally hit a button and it screen records how you do something. There's tools like Scribe How that help you to just basically record your screen and all the clicks and it helps you get like a MVP of a process documented. So you don't need to go and sit in a vacuum for a hundred hours to document every different use case. Like you could start on the most critical process, get the high level skeleton in there and iterate and get some video and then have someone take the video and update the process. And I think that's key that it's an iterative process. Like it's not going to be perfect. And this isn't client facing either. This is internal. So if there's a screw up or the screen share doesn't work right, it's fine. One one of the people that we had interviewed um, during 2020 is the CEO of Hide It Mounts. And she said, well, one thing that we did is everything got their manufacturer, everything got turned upside down and they were having a hard time with the, the shifts. And she said, we started recording all of our processes. This was the time they used Zoom, same idea, screen share. And they started documenting all their processes when business was in normal flow. Maybe they didn't prioritize or just didn't have time. And they captured everything from their hiring process, onboarding, all of it. There's always time for that. And it's not client facing and see it as an iterative process. That is key. You'll make it better on the back end, but you first have to produce something. 
So Nick, I love how you've translated the things that you've done previously and then pulled it over into this world. And I talked a little bit about what entrepreneurs are doing wrong, that they could be doing better. And I want to pull on that thread a little bit more, but I want to know what was the moment that you changed from this role that you had? Like, when's the moment they're like, it's time for me to leave. I need to do something else. Time for me to leave finance? Yes. So from from trading to like, I'm going to do this other thing that's completely different, though applicable. Like, was there a moment that you went, that's it, I'm out? Well, I guess, uh, you know, I was about 30 years old or so, had some money in the bank. And I was thinking to myself, okay, I could go on and, and you know, in five years, like be making some decent money. But I didn't have a wife or kids at the time. I still don't. I didn't have that obligation hanging over me. And I just thought to myself, a lot of how I make decisions is, okay, of course, like, well, what's the best opportunity? But also I think if I don't make this decision or if I don't pick this, how might I feel in X number of years? So kind of when I looked at it from that lens, I was like, yeah, I'll probably always regret not taking the risk if I didn't do it then. Wow. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Okay. So when we were talking about things that entrepreneurs, ways that we've missed the mark, can you give us a couple of examples? Like if you were to grab an entrepreneur by the shoulders and go, you've got to do this, what would you say to them? Uh, you know, back to the whole systems and processes and tools, you know, that they're, you know, typically idea machines and they're not investing anything into how people are going to collaborate and work. And they're sitting on a ticking time bomb, like by not having so many entrepreneurs are, making the mistake of just focusing on that top line. And by not having these systems in place, they're wasting time, but then also they've created so much risk. Think about the number one person in your company. If they were to leave right now, how much that sets you back, right? The moment that they leave that door, everything in their head is gone. And like, you're just kind of fucked, right? Like you don't have stuff documented and it's not rocket science typically to move faster forward or grow at a certain percent but it's avoiding those setbacks. Oh, I, I never thought April was going to quit. And now it takes me six months to recover from that setback, right? And then you've, not only that, you've got to go through a hiring process and pay a recruiter or go through months of interviewing people. That takes time, money, and resources. Then say you get lucky and you hire someone in three months, it's great. It's going to take them three to six months to get up to speed. And now you're paying them to refigure out stuff that that person that left had in their head that was never documented. And it's all invisible. But when you think, stop and think about it, it adds up to a significant amount of time and money. Right. And, you know, I think that it's not as sexy and it's not as measurable as, oh, I just did this Facebook ad thing and I got a 200% return on ad spend. And like you can see that number, but you still got to be thinking about this bottom line stuff. And not just moving faster forward, but avoiding, avoiding the setbacks. Yeah. So is that something you address in the book or is that something you could talk us through if someone's listening right now and they go, yeah, I've got a couple of critical employees. Maybe they're, you know, a smaller organization. They've got a few critical employees that if they left really would hamstring them. Like what's the first process of like, all right, take your ops manager and do what with them to document their processes. Well, so I have this concept that I call DRO, dynamic role optimization. And essentially one, you have to document like processes, but what we've done is we've taken it to another level. And if you think about what is a job or a role, it's really the sum of micro responsibilities. So this whole micro <laughs> kind of- There it is again. From, yeah. So 
if you're the director of marketing, today it might mean one thing. In three years, the job might look different. But you're not going to go and update the job description in three years if the person's still there, like they're under the original job description. And so what we've done is, but the director of marketing, it might be 50 responsibilities that are like, if you break it down, like you're responsible for posting the podcast, you're responsible for the newsletter strategy, your stuff that you're not going to get that granular on a job description. But by documenting that out, and we have a process, I'm actually doing a webinar on how we do this. What I can tell you, April, is like we obsess about systems and processes. And like we were making, at a certain point, we're like so efficient, like, okay, we, we just saved 10 minutes this week because of this new thing that that was a big win. When we did this about six months ago, we all got about seven hours back of time, every person in the company. Like it was massive. And so what you do is it's this process of documenting all the responsibilities, but then who is the person that's doing it? What's that person's work level? So we have a concept of work levels one to five, which um, I don't have time to get into now, but we have some content on this. If people are interested, we could put some links to the website in the show notes, but we have work levels one to five, one being the most junior, five being the most senior, which corresponds to salary bands. And then each responsibility has its own work level tied to it. So if you're a work level five, and one of the things you're responsible for is posting the podcast, which easily could be done by a virtual assistant, if there's a documented process, that responsibility would be a one. So if you're a five and you're doing a one, we call that a delta of four. And so as a company, we've got all the responsibilities documented, who's doing it, what's the work level. And then every quarter, we make goals around reducing the company delta, which means getting junior work off of senior people's plates. And so this is doing a few things. It's making your role more dynamic. That's why it's called dynamic role optimization. It de-risks the company because we know exactly what people are doing, but it also de-risks as a second order effect. Indirectly, it de-risks because this leads to happier employees because they're getting to get rid of the crap they don't want and work on higher level stuff, which then like the way that we give raises and bonuses is tied to what percentage of your work is at a certain work level. So there's an incentive model built into it. And then ultimately, April, what what this does is it leads to happier people, which leads to higher retention, which then leads to avoiding those six month setbacks inevitably as well. So a lot of it kind of coming full circle, it's a lot about de-risking. Yeah. I love this concept. It reminds me when we talk about delegation internally, we always say that it should be delegated down to the person that's capable of doing it, competent at doing it, but just barely. If you've got someone who's up here and they're doing this level of work, it's a waste of resources, right? And that person doesn't feel inspired when they're doing that work either. Totally. And and yes, like there is like a delegating down element to it, but sometimes it might be, hey, this is a work level three. I'm a work level three, but I would rather rip my fingernails out than do this. And there's another work level three who loves doing that thing. And so it's one aspect is the delegating down. And, you know, if your time is worth a hundred an hour, you shouldn't be doing work that's $10 an hour. But the other is, hey, I just don't get joy from this. So it's giving people a better work experience, which ultimately leads to higher employee retention. 
It does. It does. Nick, I have a couple follow-up questions, but before I do that, tell the listeners where they can connect with you. We're going to put them in the show notes as well, but where's the best place to connect with you? So getleverage.com is, is our website. So you could go there. If you want to chat, you know, hello at getleverage.com is, is the email that you could write into. We've just rolled out, you know, we talked about Asana quite a few times on this. We've just rolled out a training program on Asana because that's really one of the most fantastic tools we've come across. So, you know, at getleverage.com slash Asana, you could learn more about that. And then we've got a ton of resources. I got that book coming out. I've got my own podcast, the Leverage Podcast. You know, if you just start poking around on that website, you'll, you could go down rabbit holes. That's perfect. You know, it's funny as you're talking about Asana, I'm thinking, I, I think I want to get this training. We love Asana, but we also recognize internally that we're operating at 50% of its capacity and we know it can do so much more. So that's of interest to us as well. Yeah, no, I mean, even if you're operating at 90%, that extra 10% might be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to you. Absolutely. Sometimes just getting fresh eyes on things to poke holes and show you, hey, like, have you ever thought about it this way? I think a, a big mistake people get into is they think that they're doing everything right and they <laughs> need more of a student mindset. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. You know, one thing we didn't talk about, you know, what? I'm going to see if we can squeeze this in really quick. One thing we didn't talk about, I wanted to bring up earlier is, so when we talk about a business owner and, and they're often the visionary, entrepreneurs often are, do you address the idea of, okay, oftentimes a visionary needs to be paired with the implementer where the implementer is more around the systems and can kind of bring that into the organization where the visionary is like, I got this idea and we're, we're moving ahead and they can motivate, but they don't necessarily drop down a level and go, and the processes are this. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm very close with like Gino Wickman and, and uh, Mark Winters who wrote Traction and, and Rocket Fuel. So I'm very well Great aware of these. Yeah. Look, it's totally valid and fine to split things up like that. But I do think that for the most part, it's dangerous to say that uh, the visionary does not know at a minimum some, some level of how the systems work, right? Now, it might be that your primary focus is on the idea generation and all that, but it's definitely going to slow things down if you don't know what tool to use for what purpose. And with a lot of these things, it really needs to come from the top down. So if you're the visionary and you're not following kind of the system of, hey, text is for personal, emails for external, Slack is for internal, Asana's for this, and you are texting and emailing and WhatsApping like interchangeably without any rhyme or reason, it sends the wrong message and it's going to be really hard to have organizational adoption. So I, I do think that no one's excluded from the exercise, but it, I don't think that that, diminishes kind of people being able to split, you know, divide and conquer and have focuses. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Great answer. Final question. If you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? Let's see. Well, I think kind of back to that core principle that they should be thinking about things, optimizing for speed of retrieval of, of, of information versus speed of transfer. I think that that is is a profound finding that we've had at Leverage in terms of seeing so many different companies and the core problems that they're facing. So I think if you could get around that mindset shift and try to set up your company to optimize for speed of retrieval versus transfer, it probably avoids a ton of problems down the road. Also, you know, we talked on this episode about 
celebrating small wins and looking kind of a little bit more through a microscope. And if it's a one second win, you know, still look for it. Uh, you know, I think that that that's important too, but uh, you know, what are you optimizing for in terms of retrieval versus transfer, I think is probably the first, the first thing to be thinking about. That's huge. Nick, you have added so much value to the pivoters today. There's no doubt that businesses will have been made better by listening to this information. Go connect with Nick, go to his website. Let's make sure that we let our listeners know when your latest book comes out. Thank you so much for the time today and the information you provided. Thanks for having me. It should be summer of 2022, but we'll keep you posted. Awesome. Thank you. Complexity scales exponentially with team size. I loved when Nick said that phrase because I can't tell you the amount of times small to mid-sized business owners say they don't have time to document their process and honestly believe that once they get bigger, it will get easier. It's one of the many tall tales us business owners love to tell. It's going to get easier when I'm bigger. Just not the case. We should take the time to document them now. Not perfectly, but again, it's an iterative process. Do it at 80%. Do it on a Zoom call where you share screen or Loom. There's so many ways that you can do this. You can simply just be walking through the process yourself or one of your teammates, and at least something is documented. You can go back and improve that. When you lose a key staff member, that is not the time to try and recreate what it is they did for the organization. I also love this idea of the scavenger hunt problems organizations go through when they can't find some piece of information, a report, a login, any kind of information. So we end up spending 10 times the amount of effort and time looking for that thing. Or then we send a text message, a WhatsApp, we blow up someone else's inbox because we can't find that piece of information. Speed of retrieval is more important than speed of transfer. Have a place and make sure that everything is in its place. Side note, that makes onboarding a new staff member way easier as well when you do this ahead of time. In closing, Nick really highlighted the importance of these micro improvements, that it's the sum of these micro improvements that get us ahead, make our businesses more sustainable, not the big sweeping changes in our business, but small, consistent steps in the right direction. And the underlining theme here throughout this whole podcast was do it. Do it now, regardless of your size, your revenue or headcount, have these processes in place so you can effectively scale. Go connect with Nick and we'll let you know when his next book is out. Have a great day. Thank you so much for dialing in today. And don't forget, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love what you hear, give us a five-star review. It means the world to us. Hit me up on Instagram at the April Garcia or check us out online at pivot-me.com. This is all made possible with the support of you listeners, the numerous contributors and our clients. Our music and production is by the amazing Rockwood Audio. Join me next time for more tips on how to hack success. And until then, make it a great day. Thanks, guys. You guys are amazing.